Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is one of Deep State Radio's briefs and debriefs. Hello and welcome to another episode of National Security Magazine. I'm David Rothkopf, your host, and we are fortunate to be joined today by John McLaughlin, former acting director of Central Intelligence, deputy director of Central Intelligence, a career uh, leader in the intelligence community, uh, and one of the most uh, thoughtful commentators on issues of intelligence and national security that I know anywhere. Um, I, I think the natural place for us to start is that we uh, we just saw the release of a national intelligence strategy in which the threats that were cited uh, from s- sources like the Russians uh, were to, you know, the uh, international order that we had been fighting for 75 years to put together um, and uh, – threats to Western democracy, and so on. And it it, it struck me in in reading it that this was a not very well-veiled list of threats that were associated directly with the president of the United States, with his policies on NATO, with his alignment with the Russians, with uh, his desire to cover up... uh, uh, hostile interference in our elections and so forth. And I thought that was extraordinary, but you know this world better than anybody else, and I was wondering what your reactions were. Well, similar, David. Um, I I guess I was not surprised. You could say that there were threats to the global order before Trump, but I think it's fair to say that his policies have only accentuated the threat in a number of ways. First, global order is one of those terms that people throw around, and you have to ask first, what does it really mean? Uh, Here's what it boils down to, in my view. It's that throughout modern history, most countries have accepted a few simple rules to ward off total chaos, laws and conventions around land, sea, air lanes. And uh, these rules aren't particularly sexy. Uh, Maritime law doesn't quicken the pulse. And you know, countries have bolstered these with a series of institutions that I think uh, are also under some threat. And I think that's what the intelligence community is talking about. If you look at Chinese behavior, for example, I mean, the most obvious case is the South China Sea, where by building these artificial islands on top of coral reefs, they've created a, uh, a rationale to claim 90% of the South China Sea through which 30% of the world's shipping passes. That's defying a an aspect of global order. They've done something similar with air in the uh, East China Sea, and, and then in Russia's case, their invasion of Ukraine ba- breaks at least three international treaties of with the U.S. having signed at least two of them, uh, two of them for sure. Um, and in the Middle East, uh, you've got uh, the disorder over uh, borders and 
South Asia, Middle East, it's clear that less developed countries have trouble exercising sovereignty over their territory. So when when the president, uh, I, I don't think this is aimed exclusively at the president, but I think it certainly takes account of the fact that he has um, shown little interest and some hostility toward the European Union, which is a you know basic element of the global order. And also, of course, toward NATO, another element of the global order. And instead of focusing on some of China's real challenges, he's gotten into a trade war with them, and uh, and on and on and on. And in the Russia case, quite clearly, uh, while he deserves some credit for having uh, taken some uh, tough policies toward Russia, I don't think they're his policies. I think people in the administration have kind of sneaked past him the... Uh, expulsions we've seen of Russian uh, officials and the sanctions and the uh, uh, shipment of uh, some weaponry to Ukraine that it had wanted. So uh, first point is I think they're absolutely right to say maybe the biggest challenge we have is to global order. And second, I think the implication is clear and justified that the president's policies have accelerated this. You know, we live in a violent era, and if these issues of order are left unsettled, the chances of conflict, if only by miscalculation, uh, grow pretty dramatically. I mean, isn't that the story of the 20th century? So we, we, we I think we're in that difficult spot. Well, yeah. certainly. And, and you know, I, I think even beyond that, to the extent to which these tendencies that it talks about this report uh, and you and you just now talk about end up weakening that order or uh, potentially eliminating key components of that order, um, uh, then it invites even further um, um uh, challenges and and problems, but but let me just you know sp- sp- stick with the the first question for a moment, uh, and uh, you know I, what I without being you know pedantic here I just uh, go to the Washington Post and I open it up and the, here's the story about it. Former colleague of mine, Shane Harris, writes: The United States will. This is the lead on it. The United States will be challenged in coming years by nations that exploit quote the weakening of the post World War II international order and dominance of Western democratic ideals and quote increasingly isolationist tendencies in the West, according to new intelligence document published Tuesday. The document, known as the National Intelligence Strategy, goes on cites Russia. Uh, seeking to flex its geopolitical muscle, um, and then goes on to talk a little bit about the election. Above this is a picture of Director of National Intelligence Daniel Coates. And he obviously had to sign off on this strategy, and he clearly knows that this strategy is, in in many respects, repudiation of the president, um, uh, or at least a warning about some things the president holds dear. And You've been in a leadership position in the intelligence community, and clearly, uh, I imagine, have been watching Dan Coates closely. And he was gotten a little trouble around the time of 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 uh, Trump's uh, Helsinki meeting with Putin for speaking his mind and being shocked by it and letting the world know that he hadn't been briefed on it. Uh, this, to me, again, seems like a bit of, and I wouldn't call it muscle flexing, but 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 sort of calculated um, uh, standing up 
to at least those people around the president who've been advancing these issues since I'm pretty sure nobody thinks the president himself is actually going to read this. I think that's right. I think that's what he's doing. And he's doing what intelligence should be doing. Uh, when I talk to intelligence people, which I do uh, periodically in a, in a formal sense and informally, uh, I say to them, look, uh, you guys have power. It isn't hard power. It isn't soft power. It's truth power, truth power, because intelligence in the environment we have in our government now and in the country, uh, the intelligence agencies who you know, have made mistakes, of course, I'm not presenting them as, as uh, perfect, but their fundamental purpose and their fundamental duty at this time is to speak the truth. That is, at a time when um, a lot of questions exist about well, what is true, what is factual, what is fake news, etc. Um, these are the people who have to, in fact, by charter, uh, they they need to say what's really happening and the consequences. And I think they, I think Dan Coates is at a point. I think he's uh, an honest um, and person of integrity, and I think he's at the point where uh, he's just speaking the truth and letting the chips fall where they may. And I think we have to admire him for that. There's another dimension of this that I want to mention, which is, as you were talking, it occurred to me, uh, the isolationist impulse, which is very clear, and the uh, dismissal of institutions is dangerous also because it isn't just that China is challenging our preeminence. It's that barring some major upheaval in China, they will continue to grow. Um, Larry Summers, a previous Treasury Secretary, wrote a piece not long ago that caught my attention in which he said, you know, if, if all things continue as they are, by 2050, our economy will be, be about half the size of China's. What does that tell you? That tells you we're going to need force multipliers. Force multipliers are most effectively come through international institutions and through alliances and coalition management. And that's precisely what I think we've seen drop off in this administration. Uh, it's a time in the world where I think for America to be safe and prosperous and to preserve its leadership, it has to, it has to have allies, it has to manage those relationships, it has to um, contribute to their health and their vitality, and that's, that's not happening. So you um, started your career in the intelligence community in 1972. And Hard to believe. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, 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 I'm reluctant to acknowledge that I remember 1972 as well as I do. But, <laughs> Someone but has to. Somebody has to, right. Well, I think that's, that's, a, that's an important point. You know, back then... You know, we were we had political problems. The president of the United States was um, uh, turned out to be a crook. Um, but you know, there was a quite a clear line between the politics of the moment and the national security of the moment, and uh, uh, some of it. Some of it was it was because there were people around the president who took over on those issues, including Henry Kissinger. Some of it was because. You know, there was a playbook that Democrats and Republicans had accepted regarding U.S. national security for a long, long time about containment, about uh, nuclear doctrine, about who our enemies were, about how Americans conducted themselves overseas, about uh, how important our alliances were and so forth. And these things were 
unchallengeable. And yet here we are in a period where the president is once again compromised by by some questions of 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 his behaviors and some activities that may uh, such as hush money payments in an election uh, be deemed criminal. but the the big difference is that some of the lines that have been crossed have to do with national security. And that, in fact, here we are, the government of the United States has uh, been shut down for more than a month. As a result of that shutdown for more than a month, the Coast Guard hasn't gotten paid. The FBI hasn't gotten paid. A lot of important security functions within the government hasn't been paid. We've learned in the past couple of weeks that the president still has actively sought to um, uh, consider getting out of NATO, our most important alliance, continues to attack alliance uh, partners. Uh, we've seen that even though the Russians have intervened, that this administration has uh, uh, fought um, uh, imposing sanctions uh, or lift has sought to lift sanctions on one of the oligarchs to whom uh, Paul Manafort was most beholden, who is closest to Trump, Oleg Deripaska. Uh, in other words, it continues to work to advance a Russian agenda there, not to mention uh, in Syria, not to mention with regard to pulling out of the INF Treaty. Um, and so, you know, we could go on and on, but we, we're at a moment where our political crisis is also a national security crisis. And I'm wondering, having the perspective of the time that you've that you've had and having seen the United States through so many uh, kinds of uh, crises and periods, uh, you know, great and small, I'm wondering just how that feels to you to be in this kind of a moment. Well, it's, as many people would say, it's uh, totally unique. Um, I'm not the first to say um, that I've never seen anything like it, but maybe when you're my age and having been through all of that, maybe that is more significant than for someone who's 25. Um, to use a phrase from the American Revolution, uh, it's it's a world turned upside down. Uh, if you go back to 1972, of course, um, the, the, the geopolitical context was entirely different. We ha We were in the middle of a Cold War, which most people actually don't remember. But we had the main enemy, the main adversary, the Soviet Union, and we could view the world through that prism. You know, at CIA, something like 60% of its effort was devoted to that one country, the Soviet Union. And when they collapsed and vanished in 1991, uh, the world didn't get any simpler, but that major enemy went away. And we go into now a much more complex world with a longer list of discrete problems that require attention. And how we get to, to the point that, you know, even, even though that has been the case since 1991, you can think back through the, um, the senior Bush years, Bush 41, uh, the Clinton years, um, the Obama years, and the world was as complicated, but there was not this... Um, division over foreign policy so acute as to bleed in back and forth between our domestic politics and foreign policy the way it's happening now. I, you know, we could, people could diagnose this in a dozen different ways. To, to, in our system, as I think you would agree, 
it is so driven by presidential leadership. Uh, almost everything uh, is driven by presidential leadership. We are not a parliamentary system. Uh, over time, we've accorded such prestige and such influence to our president that the signals given off by the president radiate through society and through the federal government. So um, when I don't want to lay this all at Trump's door because there's a Congress as well, but uh, when a president is um, uncertain about policies toward the world or pursuing policies that are clearly uh, favorable toward authoritarians and dictatorships and showing no interest in human rights, the kind of things that have animated American policy. Think back to our incursion into the Balkans uh, in the 1990s, motivated entirely by human rights, really, uh, and our settlement of that at Dayton. Um, when you have a president who's giving those signals off, it radiates through uh, much of the structure. When you have a government that is not fully staffed, a State Department that is still bleeding uh, key officials, even under a new secretary, uh, a Defense Department that has no yet permanent Secretary of Defense, it's not hard to imagine how all of that happening domestically um, puts a degree of um, chaos into your foreign policy. Now, add to that the role of the Congress. And again, I, you know, I don't want to lay everything on um, at the risk of sounding like too much of a, uh, an old timer. I don't want to lay everything on the quality of our congressional leadership. But I do remember a time when you had real what might be called lions in the Congress, uh, just thinking of the oversight of intelligence and the people I dealt with at different times. Uh, you know, uh, Senator Dunn, Nunn, Senator Cohen, Senator um, uh, from um, uh, Hollings, Fritz Hollings, and so forth, uh, Senator Ted Stevens, and people who were somehow... Um, able to set aside politics more readily when it came to foreign affairs and also better able to pull together a coalition in the Congress behind uh, certain policies, as Senator Nunn did on on uh, nonproliferation, for example. So I think there's a combination of things here going, and the, and the congressional mess is, I'm told by people who've left the Congress, partly a result of... Uh, too much uh, gerrymandering of Congress, which makes it very hard for an incumbent to lose. All of that is in the mix. So I think we have uh, a bit of a domestic crisis that is bleeding into the foreign crisis, and the overlay of that is the uh, strange sort of presidential leadership that we have at the moment. Uh, that would be how I think about it, but it certainly is an unprecedented time to return to the first point. Yeah. Well, and how does, you know, I mean, it, it, it obviously has an effect on the people who are charged with defending our national security. You spoke about Dan Coats, but in the rank and file of the intelligence community, uh, as they see reports and, uh, you know, they, 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 you know, they, to, to go back to your reference to revolutionary way, they did, they, they see the world turned upside down, um, in that, you know, the reports are about the president, uh, they're, uh, you know, was the report partially specious or not from, you know, BuzzFeed that was, you know, turned on the idea that um, perhaps, um, you know, there were 
you know, mo- you know, moves afoot with yeah. the, the, you know, the FBI and so forth to to look into the involvement of the president here and what the consequences of those were. And um, and 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 then there is the sort of repeated attacks on these institutions by the president of the United States. What is the morale like where you used to work? Well, that's it, always a tough question. I think it's not as bad as people think it is, in part because uh, it's a business that or a profession that's accustomed to controversy, accustomed to uh, being criticized, if not by the president, by someone else. Um, and uh, in in a way, uh, it's a little hard to explain this, but in a way, in that profession, at least at the CIA, the one I know the best, uh, people just. Um, you know, if you talk to CIA people, what you hear most frequently is, and this is going to sound a little rah-rah, but it's the truth, you'll hear most frequently, mission comes first. They put their heads down and they just plow ahead. And they know what they have to do. The ethic there is so strong of A, stay out of politics, B, call it as objectively as you can, C, make clear what it is you don't know, you're not omniscient, and do your best to look ahead, to not f- predict the future, but to foresee trends that are taking us in us. That mission is so difficult and so compelling uh, that for most people, they just come in every day and do their jobs. Is there water cooler talk about all this? Yes, of course. Uh, how could there not be? Uh, throughout my career, there always was about something going on domestically, but they compartment that. They put it aside. And I think the leadership of the uh, major institutions now, and here I know the CIA best and and know Dan Coates reasonably well, I I think they in particular understand that this is a a unique period for them and that they have a special kind of duty now to when this is all over, and sooner or later it will be, it always is, uh, when it's all over, that they want to be seen as having been uh, truthful and independent and done their duty in this time. And that's a pretty um, important motivator, I think. So I want to disabuse people of the idea that everyone is sitting there wringing their hands and immobilized and, um, you know, just thinking about this all the time. They're problem solvers. So I would guess, say, briefing the president, you can imagine what a what a challenge that is. I would imagine that they don't wring their hands. They just ask themselves, well, uh, how does this guy absorb information? Is it with graphics? Is it short sentences? Is it uh, sound bites? How do you, how does he absorb information? And then they do their best to get their point across. And I'm quite confident that if he says something that they believe not to be true and, and harmful, if it were to be accepted as true, I'm quite confident they they have the the wherewithal to say to him, that's not correct, Mr. President. I'm confident of that. I know them that well. So that, that's how I answer that. I I hope that helps. Yeah, no, no, in, indeed it does. And you know, I think in the interest of fairness, um, it's worth pointing out, or I just make the reference in passing that I remember during the Clinton administration, um, more than one incident where um, the representatives of the uh, uh, intelligence community came in and briefed 
group of people in the Situation Room uh, on, on an issue, and the people in the Situation Room didn't want to hear it, and they pushed back on it. And I know people, you know, that people got fired. People, you know, there, there was, it was, it's not just a Republican thing. And Democrats don't like it either. You know, there, there, there have been many instances, and I think it's sort of wired into the work that particularly people, you know, in the directorate of intelligence, the analysts, the people who provide this kind of uh, uh, material up the chain uh, are, are, are used to. Um, yeah, I, as a matter of fact, you know, I teach a graduate course and this, uh, I kind of invert the, these, the, uh, the list of subjects so that they, um, after I do an introduction of the, of the field, the very next thing I do is to spend two and a half hours uh, covering the relationship with the policy community because it is difficult sometimes, but it's crucial. If you, if you do not, if you're not relevant to what they're trying to deal with, you might as well not be doing this. On the other hand, you can't be supine. On the other hand, you can't be sticking your finger in their eye all the time. Uh, they're human beings. You can't be too arrogant because you don't know everything, but you have to be forthright, uh, and, and prepared for a vigorous dialogue. So this is a tough job they do. And, um, and they try and learn from mistakes and Lord knows we've made them, but you always do an after action and say, how could we do this better? So you're right. That went on. I recall, I could give you cases from, you know, I worked for seven presidents at different times and I could give you cases from all administrations, but I suspect, I don't suspect, I know it's tougher these days. This is, it's really tougher these days because of the nature of this administration. But they're doing their job. And how, how, how do you think Gina Haspel is doing? I think she's doing great. Um, I'm very uh, encouraged, was encouraged by her selection. I think she is a professional. She is a calm, uh, deliberative person. She has, uh, to use a hackneyed phrase, seen it all. And... Uh, uh, and she's put together a very good team, a very balanced team at the top of the agency. And as best I can tell from my contacts, uh, she's highly regarded there and people are very glad to work for her. And I, I don't know the nature of her relationship with the president, but I suspect she's figured out how to uh, manage that effectively. Um, I, I just know she would have, I mean, that's, She's a case officer. I mean, that's her job. Well, she's, well, she's, uh, she's certainly used her training to stay out of the headlines, which is, um, I, I think. Yeah, she's taken, a, she's taken a different tack than some CIA directors who've uh, been more public. I think she deliberately is taking her time to, um, to emerge publicly. She probably will be more public at some point, but I think wisely she's taking her time to make sure she has <laughs> her agency house in order and knows what kind of public message she wants to give. Well, but we have just a limited amount of time left and I don't want to, uh, you know, take advantage of, of, of your time, but, but maybe two more questions. One of which again cuts to this, this central story, but from a different perspective, you spent a great deal of time in your career looking at the behavior of adversaries, including the Soviet union. I think it's probably fair to say that, if we take a step back from Trump Russia, um, and we should, you see a systematic effort by Russian intelligence 
to undercut the Western alliance in many facets and with Brexit, uh, by supporting uh, in Europe uh, right-wing or ethno-nationalist uh, parties that are anti-European or, or uh, uh, anti-NATO, um, uh, supporting people that support them, uh, taking advantage of these voids. In fact, you might argue that as intelligence operations go, uh, given Brexit, given Trump's election, given the consequences of Trump's election, given other elections in Europe, Italy, Hungary, and elsewhere, um, that this operation of the Russians is one of the most successful international long-term intelligence operations we've ever seen. Uh, and so my first question is, do you agree? And my second question is, are we prepared really to counteract this kind of effort that so relies on uh, information warfare and other sort of softer techniques, but that have real hard consequences? Well, um, yes and no. Yes to your observation that this is a very successful series of operations by Putin. No to the question about whether we are prepared to deal with this. Uh, on the first question, I think Russia is motivated by two, by many things, but two I would single out here. And, and I would put this in the context of Putin at some point here, I would say after 2012, when he comes back as president, he clearly has decided to go global. Um, you, you see his actions now, not just in Europe, but of course, obviously in Syria. Uh, you see him starting to um, reach into Africa. In our hemisphere, he's gotten oil concessions to at least five major oil fields from the Venezuelans in return for simple loans and other things, and some offshore gas concessions as well. So he, he is going global in his effort to extend the influence of the country and doing it through, frankly, very successful diplomacy. This isn't all covert action. There's a lot of covert action, but he combines it with pretty good diplomacy as well. And among the things that motivates him is um, a desire to compensate in an asymmetric way for our superiority on conventional measures. Our military is much bigger. He spends about $65 billion a year on defense. We spend over $700 billion. His economy is $1.3 trillion. Ours is $18 trillion. So he needs something to compensate for that. For that. And also, Russia's, since the breakup of the Soviet Union, very insecure. I mean, they lost their outer uh, security buffer with the loss of the satellites and their inner security buffer because all the republics around them became independent countries. So um, all of that's in the mix. Uh, on the second question you raised, uh, you know, we have the capacity to deal with this. But in my experience, culturally and otherwise, we're still catching up. You know, we're still accustomed to being the world's preeminent power and thinking that, you know, countries that engage in this sort of gray zone warfare where there's a lot of uh, psychological warfare, information warfare, and frankly, dissembling or lying, which is another technique, that's for weaker countries. Uh, you know, we're big and strong. We don't need to do all of that. Well, I think we're at a moment when our diplomacy and our covert action and all of that needs to be more refined, more subtle, 
uh, more directed against the nature of this threat coming at us, not only from Russia, but also from other countries as well. And also, we need to figure out where do we want to be with Russia over time? I came back from my last visit there thinking, this is a terrible relationship. And in this sense, Trump has a point. We we would be better off with a different relationship with Russia, but how do you get there and preserve your own security? That's still a mystery. And that's another thing we have to figure out because unlike the Soviet Union, which went away, Russia's not going away. It, it's going to be there in one form or another. And uh, so there are many challenges in this. And uh, the brief answer to your two questions are, at least from my perspective, um, yes, he's succeeding playing a, a weak hand extremely well. And B, we're not quite in the game yet as fully and artfully as we need to be. Would I, would I be right as a final question that you, you, you feel that beyond those problems, um, another problem of the current situation is that it distracts us from things like the rise of China? Oh, yes. Uh, we've been distracted by, from that for years by other things. Think of our involvement in the, well, we've got now, we've been at war long enough for someone to grow up in uh, in South Asia and in the Middle East. And yes, China has benefited from that time uh, in a number of ways, including studying what we're doing in order to develop countermeasures. And I, you know, the mood in Washington right now seems to me increasingly, I'd be interested if you see it this way, increasingly to be very uh, hostile toward China. And that contrasts a bit with the mood toward China in some previous administrations, particularly the Obama and Clinton administrations. And I'm not sure we have figured this out. Um, if you think about it, looking ahead, uh, the logical expectation among human beings is that everyone will try and jump ahead of everyone else. So the logical expectation is for the likelihood of some kind of prolonged conflict. But in thinking about China, I'm, I'm not sure where this should really settle. Should this be a competition? Should they be an adversary? Should they be a partner over time? I think those are all mega questions that still have to be sorted out by some smart people in our government. Where are we trying to get with China? And uh, right now, I would say if you, the consensus is we have a threat there and we got to prepare to meet it on every level. Look at what the, uh, the recent uh, National Commission on Defense that reviewed our defense strategy, the one that was headed by Eric Edelman and, uh, and uh, Gary Ruffhead. Look where they came out. And their startling conclusion at the very end was today we, we cannot be sure that we would win and we might even lose a war against Russia or China. That's pretty sobering. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. And having been involved in the middle of China policy and the Clinton administration yep. and watched it very closely ever since, you know, it's always been clear to me that we need a discussion about 
new kinds of doctrines because the Cold War doctrine with regard to the Soviet Union was very zero-sum. If they gained, we lost. If we gained, they lost. But that's not the relationship with China, with whom we are deeply economically integrated uh, and upon whom we are deeply interdependent. And so you need a kind of doctrine of interdependency, which requires a lot more subtlety because you have carrots and sticks. You have, uh, you know, a a way of balancing out things, but you have to 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 play it right. Um, And and we're not dealing with that. You know, we're we're dealing in a kind of a crude way. Still, the president's stance on trade policy is an example of that, where he is viewing trade policy as a zero something, even though. The reality is, of course, that's the last zero something that there is out there. Right, uh, exactly. Um, but uh, in any event, I, you know, I, it, the 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 failure to have the discussion about next generation um, economic policies, intelligence policies, uh, military policies, new kinds of threats um, is one of the great opportunity costs of being bogged down in in this period of real internal political crisis. That's right. Uh, fortunately, uh, we have the benefit of people with perspectives like yours, and 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 I'm so grateful that you took the time uh, to join us for this. And I hope you'll do so again because this is exactly the purpose of these National Security ma- Magazine conversations to give people a kind of more in-depth discussion than they can get on CNN or MSNBC with people who have given this a lot of uh, quality thought, like yourself. So. Perhaps someday you'll you'll come back and join us again. I would love to. Thank you, David. Thank thank you very much, John. And and thanks to all of you for listening. If you're looking for more from us, go to deepstateradionetwork.com, where you'll find more programming, uh, more writing, uh, daily briefs, weekly briefs on technology, and a whole host of other things. Join up, become a member, help support this uh, uh, fledgling uh, but uh, rapidly growing uh, effort to shine a little light in some of these dark corners. Uh, And please join me in thanking once again uh, John McLaughlin. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.